How much is the kingdom of God worth to you? How much is the kingdom of God worth to you? Now, I, I ask that uh, in light of something I said early in our series on the kingdom of God, where it is my observation that many, many evangelical Christians really have no idea what the kingdom of God is, actually. And uh, we're happy about salvation, we're happy about the gospel, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, uh, largely unaware of it, don't live that much during the week in light of it, and it is the kingdom of God that Jesus said is so valuable that if you really grasp its worth, you would give up everything that you have to have it, okay? Now today, we're looking at four little parables, okay? These are they're little parables, big truth, okay? Little parables, big truth, and you're going to see that as we, uh, as we get into this. And remember what a parable is. A parable was a teaching tool that Jesus employed where he encrypted spiritual truth into a very plain-sounding story that allowed those that were spiritually awakened to understand what he was saying, and for everybody else to think, what was that all about? I don't get it. And uh, these parables are throughout Jesus' teaching. Matthew has lots of parables, and uh, chapter 13 is kind of the, like the epicenter of parables in the New Testament. And today we're going to look at four of these, two of their, and they're two pairs, really. They're set in pairs because the truth that they are teaching they're, they are uh, complementary. So let's look at the first two parables. We're in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 31. And the first thing that Jesus is going to say, and you're going to hear this in these very brief parables, is that we shouldn't measure the significance of the kingdom of God by how small it begins. Okay? By how small it begins. Here's what he says. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Okay, there's the first parable. Here's the second one. Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So there's our two little parables that we're starting off with here. And like the size of the parables themselves, Jesus here is emphasizing the smallness and apparent insignificance of the kingdom of God, particularly in its beginning. And this is true historically in terms of its expansion, just beginning with a few of Messiah Messiah and a couple of disciples walking around some little plot of land in first century Roman Empire. You would never suspect something was going to come of it. But it is also uh, true in terms of our personal experience in the kingdom of God, where so often it begins with a very small kind of faith commitment to Jesus, a small awakening to the gospel, but over time it absorbs our entire personhood, another example of this. So he uses here now two very small things in first century Israel. Now today we'd go, it's like an electron, it's like a proton or some very small thing that we understand. In that day, these were two of the smallest things anybody even knew about. He begins with 
what he calls the mustard seed, and he says that it's the smallest of all seeds. Now, apparently, some people take Jesus to task about this because in modern horticulture, they have actually discovered seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds. Uh, So did Jesus not know that there were seeds in the world that were smaller than mustard seeds? No, he knew that, but all the people he was talking to didn't know that. And so the point of reference is what they understood to be the smallest of all seeds, and the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds known at that time. So how small is a mustard seed? Here, this will show you how small a mustard seed is. That's a small seed, don't you think? I think we're safely saying this is a very, very small seed, okay? A mustard seed. And uh, what is notable about the mustard seed is the size that it begins with and then the very different size that it ends with. And that's what Jesus highlights here. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it is mature, look how big it is. And here's a picture of what uh, a mustard, it's, it's kind of a bush tree thing, you know, but compared to the little seed, that's a big thing, isn't it? I mean, for such a big thing to come from such a little thing, you would never guess, looking at the little thing, what it was going to eventually become. What is Jesus' point? Really big things can come from really small beginnings, okay? It would be very unwise to look at a mustard seed and think to yourself, this isn't going to amount to anything. Look how small it is. This has no future at all. Let's just get rid of it. It'll never become anything. And here's again the point. Don't judge a tree by the size of its seed, and don't judge a kingdom by the size of its beginning. The kingdom of God has very small, incredibly humble beginnings. Actually, it started in a manger. That's the mustard seed, a manger in Bethlehem. Now, the second here, again, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So leaven in flour, okay, this is in a culture where you didn't just go to the store and buy bread. I bet if we surveyed the the crowd here today, how many of us make our own bread? Some of you do, right? The purists, the sort of organic granola crowd. You're growing the wheat in your backyard or something. But most of us simply go to the store and we we buy our bread. But in the first century, you made your own bread. And you can imagine Jesus saying, it's like leaven and flour. And the women especially, who in that culture that was part of their responsibility would begin nodding their heads leaven you know I have noticed that leaven's very small I use it all the time that's a good analogy how small is leaven okay here's a picture of some leaven that's pretty small isn't it that's very small and what Jesus notes here is that you can take a little bit of leaven and if you work it into flour even a large amount of flour It has a tremendous effect, right? Now, he says here, three measures of flour. Most of us have no idea what that, how much that is. I certainly didn't. But uh, the experts tell us that that was enough flour to feed a hundred people, okay? So that's a lot of bread. Compared to the amount of flour, the leaven is very, very little. But the leaven's effect is very, very little. Big, 
Don't judge the power of something by its size. And we living in the atomic age know that very well, don't we? Little things can be very, very powerful. So the mustard seed shows how something very little can become very big. And the leaven shows that something very little can have a powerful and profound impact. So how does this relate then to the kingdom of God? Remember, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is like. So there's the, there is the analogy. How does this apply to the kingdom of God? Well, remember, it is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God, after all. We're not talking about a kingdom of man. This isn't the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, even America. What happens in the kingdoms of man? You study history and what you see is they only go as far as man can take them. Man's cleverness, man's sustainability, whatever it might be. And of course, men, kings and queens have this nasty habit of dying. And once the leader dies, eventually, so does the kingdom. But the kingdom of God is empowered by Almighty God, who can take little things and make them big things, and can take little things and make them eternal things. And apparently, an apparent little thing, like receiving Christ as your Savior, an apparent little thing, one day in your life, can change the entire course and direction of your entire future and eternity. One believing family member can change an entire family. One believing family can leaven an entire block of a neighborhood. One church in one community can leaven and impact an entire town or city, which of course is what we are aspiring to do and to be here at Bethel Church. But the best example of this is Jesus himself. His entire story is one of apparent insignificance. What do you mean? Well, let's just walk through it. Who was he born to? A poor couple. So poor, when they went to make the sacrifice, they, they just could sacrifice the pigeons and the doves. They couldn't make the normal sacrifice. This was like for the poor people. How about where he was born? Bethlehem. Even prophecy highlighted its littleness and its smallness. Bethlehem. How about where he grew up? I mean, somewhere along the line, he must have gone to Yale or Harvard and kind of got with the powerful people. He grew up in Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel said about Nazareth? He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? So pick your town that you don't like around here, and you, can anything good thing come from that town? Nothing good ever comes from there. That's where Jesus grew up, Nazareth, okay? How about where he lived? Almost his entire life was lived in Galilee. And Galilee, that was, where, that was the hicks and the hillbillies up there. You might as well call it Galatucky, Right? Hicks and hillbillies, billboards everywhere, make Israel great again. <laughs> Don't take away our swords. Cracker barrel on every corner. Not exactly where the important and significant people start out in Galilee. 
How about this cabinet of top officials? Perhaps that's how this thing really got going, after all, as he selected really highly qualified cabinet officials. Well, who do we have here? We have a handful of fishermen, we have a tax collector, we have a doubter, and we have a betrayer. Not exactly the A-team, right? And then Jesus leaves them. Can you imagine he gets to heaven and the angels are like, you left all of that in their hands? Really? Those 12 guys? What were you thinking? So you look at it and you say, what does the kingdom of God have going for it after all? Here's what it has going for it. It is the kingdom of God. Okay? It is not man's kingdom. This is not a man thing. This is a God thing. And in God's plan, he uses common and ordinary people from common and ordinary places to do his most extraordinary work. And we could ask the question, God, why, why, why Nazareth instead of, instead of Jerusalem? Why, you know, why Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem or Rome or some other place where that's where people that are important, that's where they come from, not from places like that. Why? And the Apostle Paul answers this for us. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, your, to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So why does God use the common and the ordinary, the normal and the meek, who gets the glory when mustard seeds and leaven turn out to be really big things? Not the mustard seed and not the leaven. But God gets the glory so that no man can boast. This whole thing, we might say it this way, it's all about him. Okay? The kingdom of God is all about him. And he ensures its success. I also have to add this, is that it would be easy to think that what God really needs is really important people, powerful people, to become Christians. You ever hear that people say that, you know, if only he would become a Christian, what a testimony he would have. People say things like that about sports stars and politicians and different people. But God delights to use the common and the ordinary. And that's an encouragement. Why? Because how many of us qualify for that? We are common, ordinary, normal folk. Exactly the kinds of people that God delights to use. I'm looking out here at a whole bunch of leaven and mustard seeds. <laughs> the second two parables are just slightly later in the chapter, verse 44 through 46. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, where a man found, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Here's the fourth one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You ever have a fantasy of finding a treasure somewhere? 
How many of you grew up at the, at the vending, uh, little vending machines? You always were sticking your finger and trying to find a quarter or a nickel in the bottom of that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Or how many of us know the joy of just finding a $20 bill in an old pair of pants? Like it makes our day, right? Wow, a long forgotten, hidden treasure. Imagine what it would feel like if you actually found a treasure. Like you're just walking along. And the, the idea here is the guy just sort of stumbles on it. He sees a little glint of gold or something there in the ground, and he's like, what's that? And he goes over, and he unearths it, and all of a sudden, here's this treasure, amazing treasure, very valuable treasure. And this is actually, was not unheard of in the first century, because again, go back in your mind, first century, they don't have banks, they don't have safety deposit boxes. If you had something that was valuable, jewelry or, or gold coins, silver, or whatever it might be, what do you do when your house is built of dirt? How do you keep valuable things safe? And what they would do then is they would go out at night when nobody was watching, they would dig a hole in the ground and they would put it in the ground and they would cover it up. And that way nobody knew that it was there. If you ever needed to get it, you go back out and you get it, get it out of the ground. It also was great because there were armies all the time marching through that part of the, of, the, of the world. It was a highway there, Egyptians and all these different people all the time making war. How do you keep your valuables safe for your family? You, you don't put them in the house, you bury it in the field, and you don't tell anybody where it was. So this is not unheard of that maybe, possibly, somebody might be walking through a field and there is a treasure in the field. The man isn't looking for treasure. Somehow he just happens to find it here. And he can't believe it. He's so excited. He covers it up again, and he goes off, and he sells everything that he has. He liquidates all of his assets to buy the field. Now, you know in your heart, he's not buying the field. He's buying the treasure. Now, you could argue the ethics of shouldn't he have said to the owner, you know, there's some gold pieces down there and that, all that, and you can debate all that. That's not really the point. The point is, with joy, he went and sold everything that he had. Okay? When he found the treasure, everything that he owned now was disposable. Now was not that important to him. Now he's willing to get rid of it. He's willing to lose all of that because Getting the field and getting the treasure was to him gain. The kingdom of God is like hidden treasure. And Jesus says it's also like precious jewelry. So ladies, do I have your attention here? Okay, Precious jewelry. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, so this parable is a little bit different. The first guy stumbles across treasure in the field. This is a merchant who is actively seeking pearls. And we see here even spiritually a little analogy. Sometimes people stumble across the gospel and they weren't looking for it. There's others that search for truth and answers to life their entire life. But this guy finds one pearl like one pearl that was so perfect, it was so beautiful that all the other pearls that he'd bought and collected over all the years, they meant nothing anymore. He'd give up all of those if only he could possess this one pearl. So the first man loses everything and the treasure is his gain. The second guy sells everything and possessing the pearl is itself the gain for him. It is his reward. And both of these are getting at the same truth, okay? Here's the truth. 
The value of the kingdom of God is so far greater than anything else that we could possess in this life that if given the opportunity or the option, we would happily give up everything in order to have it. And that's why I began with the question, how much is the kingdom of God worth to you? Because what Jesus is saying here is that it is worth, if you really grasp what it means to have the kingdom of God, it's more valuable than anything else that you could have in this life. Okay? And you say, well, how? Like, what are you talking about? That sounds like sort of crazy church talk. Really? If you have the kingdom of God, let me just list a few of the things that you own, that you possess, like a pearl or a treasure. You have divine forgiveness of sins. You have forever reconciliation with the holy God. Almighty God is your Father, and all the promises that he makes for now and forever apply to you. God's presence is in your life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Eternal life in a resurrected, perfect body on the new earth. Jesus is your King now and forever, and much, much more. What would you give up, truly, to get these things? I think if we understood that, we would give up, I mean... As Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? How valuable is the kingdom of God? It's worth everything. It's worth everything. And not only in the gaining of the kingdom of God are you, are you gaining all of these things, you are actually also losing some things. Oh, like what? You're losing sin, guilt, eternal, that internal spiritual guilt and dissonance in your life. You are losing emptiness of life apart from your creator. Remember Ecclesiastes, our whole series about that. You are losing that dread of death and hopelessness that I get to see at funerals when people die that don't know Christ. You lose that. You lose eternity forever in conscious punishment in hell. You lose that. And much, much more. What would you be willing to give up in order to lose all of these things? Probably just about everything, I would say. So it's not just that we are gaining all the things that God grants to us. We are losing all the things that we don't want to be true in our life at all. And this is what Paul, again, Philippians 3, he highlights this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And you see there that same kind of calculation that Paul makes, that the merchant makes with the pearl, and that the man makes in buying the field. When he evaluates what is really valuable and what is really important, the things that we're losing in the giving up of, let me say it this way, the things that we're losing in gaining Christ are all the things we don't want anyway. And the things that we are gaining in Christ are all the things that we really want. And so in that calculation, this loss is not really loss, it's like rubbish, that's what Paul says. Why? That I might gain Christ. And how many people there are, they just, they miscalculate this. They have the opportunity to respond to Jesus, to receive him as Savior, to pledge allegiance to him as King. And they go, I don't know that I want to do that. They calculate it, but they miscalculate. They think I'm losing if I 
if I pledge allegiance to Jesus. I'm losing my freedom. I'm losing my secret sin. I'm losing my reputation with others. I'm losing my family's respect. Becoming a Christian is too much of a loss for me. I'm not going to do it. Well, why would you do it? Why would you pledge allegiance to king? Because, and this is the point that Jesus is making, the gain that I get in receiving the kingdom of God by faith far outweighs the value of anything that I am losing. And that is what allows the person who understands the calculation to lose with joy these things and to go out with joy and to buy the field and to go out with joy and to buy the pearl because I am gaining something that is so infinitely praiseworthy and glorious that the loss is nothing in comparison. And that is where our joy comes from. I wonder if this morning, are you calculating rightly, Christian, this morning? Do you understand what you have lost and what you have gained? You have the kingdom of God. Joy is the only response. Now, I'm going to illustrate this with a personal story. Okay, Many of you know that Jennifer's dad, my father-in-law, his entire career was in baseball. Okay, And in 1985, he was a scout for the Kansas City Royals when the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. And so because he was in that role, he got a World Series ring. And it had his name on it, big, you know, the way those rings are. Uh, pretty valuable, pretty valuable piece of, of jewelry. And with his name on and all the rest, obviously he just really valued it, loved it, was so glad that he had it. And for years, he wore it all the time, okay? Wore it all the time. And he'd take it off and people would say, can I see that, you know? And they'd hold it and take a picture with it or whatever it is. Why? Because it's a World Series ring. Well, one year ago, last fall, he lost it. Yeah, that's, that was their response as well. <gasps> They looked high and low. They looked everywhere. They couldn't find it. And uh, they just eventually resigned themselves that we're never going to see this World Series ring again. And, you know, tried to have a stiff upper lip about it, but it was, a you know, that is really disappointing. So um, this past June, my brother-in-law, Jim, who was particularly sympathetic about them losing the World Series ring, um, decided, you know what, I'm going to just do my best. What can we do to try to find this? So he began examining family photos from a year ago. You know, they're here, this, that, and the other. And he discovered that at one day at a park, a public park in Kansas City, he looked very carefully at the picture, and in one picture, Dad has the ring on, and then in another picture, it doesn't look like the ring's on his finger anymore. So he thinks to himself, I wonder if that ring is somewhere at that public park. So he goes, he buys a metal detector. He goes, this is, eight, what, eight months later? Something like all through the winter and all the people there and all that. Goes back to that park and begins to metal detect all over that park, and you know, it's ding, ding, ding all over the place in a park, all kinds of crazy things in the ground there. But one particular ding, he dug down, and this is what he found. 
he found my father-in-law's World Series ring. By that time, it had gone, you know, lawnmowers and all the stuff over. It had been gotten down under the ground, but he found that ring. Obviously, overjoyed that found this ring. Couldn't wait to give it to his dad. Was well, uh, my father-in-law's 70th birthday? We were having a surprise party for him, like just two or three weeks later. So we kept it secret that we had found this, and waited for the right moment. And so we lined up for a family photo for the 70th, his 70th birthday party. He thought it was on photo mode, but it was actually on video mode. And this is what happened. Picture or what? Open it. Open it. Please open it. You know what it is? You gotta tell me. Pretty amazing story, isn't it? And uh, the local Fox affiliate ran a story about it, la la la, and so it was, it was really, really a fun moment. But what do you call that? Joy. Okay? That's joy. And to be a Christian, what Jesus is saying, is like a man finding a treasure in a field and with joy giving up everything you have to buy it. And Jesus here in this story, he is the power enabling common little people like us to grow the kingdom of God, like leaven and like a mustard seed. We find here in this story that in the kingdom of God, Jesus is the pearl that we give anything to possess. He is the hidden treasure in the field that we will sell and give up everything to have. And so what I, the final thing I want to say is that Jesus is our joy, therefore. To have him is to have life. To have him is to have forgiveness of sins. To have him is to have the one thing that is more valuable than anything else that we could ever discover. He is better than silver or gold. He's better than treasure or pearls. He is better than good health or anything else in this life. Okay? If Jesus is your king, then Jesus is your joy and treasure forever. Amen? Amen. Amen.